0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of How Might We and on this episode I'm pleased to welcome Brad Borkin and we're going to be talking about how might we learn from history make better decisions. So Brad welcome would you like to introduce yourself please.
1: Hi Scott great to be here thanks for having me on your show. I'm Brad Borkin as you said and I've written two books that have to deal with history in terms of looking at great explorers and great people in history and great endeavors that were occurred in history and ask, what can we learn from this? Focusing on the decision-making side of these people and these endeavors.
0: Okay. And I think, I mean, I like decisions because I think we've mentioned before when we were off air is decisions are basically the precursor to every action we take.
1: Yes, they're at the heart of of everything. And one of the things when it came to the early Antarctic explorers was there's lots of books written about them as people about the expeditions, like what they ate and how, where they traveled and the challenges they faced, but actually up until the, the book that my co-author and I wrote, no one ever looked at the decisions and we looked at the life and death decisions, which were actually the most exciting ones mm. because they all, they all came near death all the time, but they actually very rarely ever died kind well, I of dying only happens once so yeah that's it <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true but but they but they came they came they faced all sorts of calamities and and challenges and and you know these these you know everything from frostbite to scurvy to to falling caresses and and all sorts of things and that. but somehow they they were sort of at one level sort of indestructible
0: yeah yes. I think the interesting thing is, so we, you make it, you make a decision. I think we've talked about this as well before. Is and basically, you're trying to predict the future with a decision because we we don't know the outcome until we actually make that decision and enact it.
1: That's right. Yeah, and and, and actually, a good good point is is I retired from my main job in 2021 in, in July 2021, which coincided with the launch of my second book. And inflation was 2%, and the stock market was slowly growing and the world was at peace. And a year later, you know it seemed like a sane, normal rational decision. <laughs> Inflation's at 10%, the stock market is down 25%, and the world you know, at least Ukraine and, and Russia are at war. And it's, it's just a complete un, perhaps not predictable, but it's, it's the, the outcome of a decision that you, you don't know until you look back many years later. And was that a good decision or a bad decision? Well,
0: my view on decisions is I think the decision, we make decisions and usually it's one of the, with the best capabilities we have at that time, whatever they may be, with the best intentions for the outcome that we want that's there. So I would say a decision either has the desired or unexpected outcomes.
1: Yes. And I think one of the things that's exciting about Leif and about looking whether you're looking at explorers or you're looking at at his, great people in history, is that you can't no one could predict the future. And even f- for them, like just like we can't predict the weather that well, we really can't predict what the outcome is, whether you're heading to the South Pole and you're running out of food and you're trying to decide what do we do next, or you're trying to build the Panama Canal and you're dealing with uh, Workforces dying of yellow fever and, and all sorts of other engineering challenges and building the Panama canal. It's like, you just, you, you make the best decision you can. But one of the things we learned, my co-author and I figured out in looking at these great decisions and great people was that it's not about making the best decision. It's about having the resiliency to recover from a bad decision.
0: Okay. And I suppose that's, especially when you're talking about the, the extremes in which they were doing the Panama Canal and the, and the explorers is they are extreme. And I I imagine that a decision has an impact and you can see that quite quickly. And then you have to say, make a recovery decision or another one.
1: Right. But that's true in modern life as well. I mean, in a sense, like we all have to make, we all make decisions about jobs and houses and cars and all the things that we do in our, in our day-to-day lives, relationships, all sorts of things. And you can strive to make the perfect decision. I've got a friend who wanted to buy a car and he spent years, several years analyzing, looking at websites, trying to find the perfect car for him. As opposed to just going buying a car and being like, oh, if it's not the one for me, I'll just sell it and buy another one. It's you can't it we have so many tools at our disposal to make perfect decisions, or we think we can make perfect decisions, that we're actually better off making a decision. And it might be the right one as time will tell, or it may be not a good one, but there are many different ways to recover from, from a not good decision. I suppose making, well, the other thing I'll say is not deciding
0: not to do anything is a decision in itself.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and there's some famous quote from Teddy Roosevelt about something like, you know, something to the effect of the best thing is to make a decision. And the worst thing you could do is just not make a decision. It's, it's that to make it's better to even make the wrong decision than to make no decision. Because at least then you're taking action. You're not
0: on the path, aren't you? Something's happening, you've got
1: momentum. Right. And if you're on that path and it's wrong, as happened with the Panama Canal, you can start making making the right decision. So yeah, the interesting thing with the Panama Canal was that the question was, do you build a sea level canal? Basically, you build a big trench and let the Atlantic Ocean and Pacific Ocean fill it. Or do you build a, a, a canal with locks, as the Panama Canal exists today? And they started out with this idea: well, you just build a big trench and you dig across Panama and across all the swamps and the jungles and the rainforests, and you big, build this big trench. And and it and the problem was it was the wrong decision. You just couldn't the 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 soil, the clay, the the very wet dense material earth that's there that kept the more they dug the more they had landslides i was just destroying the work they were doing and they were and what they found was that to just go back on the original decision and say that was the wrong decision we tried it the wrong decision now we've got to go to build locks and they end up building 12 locks each lock being like a thousand feet long and you know, three times bigger than any lock ever built in the world. And they built 12 of them in, you know, in the years between 1910 and 1914. So it's looking at a decision and saying, okay, now we've got to make the wrong decision. Now it's gonna cost us a whole ton of effort and money to 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 correct it, but we will correct it. And they were successful.
0: So in your view of all these, the, the people that you've done, they've all not been afraid to make decisions and actually enact on something and then say, oh, that's not quite worked out properly. And then made, have the say so the resilience then to make corrective action. Exactly. Exactly.
1: You so saw that we saw this in Antarctica a lot. Mm-hmm. That there's a wonderful decision that Shackleton had to make. He was, so this is his first expedition that he led in Antarctica. And it's lesser known than the expedition where the ship got sunk in the ice and got crushed in the ice and and sunk and and called the endurance expedition. this was called the Nimrod Expedition and he and four men as part of this expedition left base camp and they were trekking to the South Pole. and they got to roughly from the coastline to the South Pole was about 800, 850 miles. They got to within 103 miles of the South Pole and realized they were running out of food and they were either, they had a, this choice, which is they had a choice of either we go forward, And we probably die on the way back. Almost certainly we'll die because we don't have enough food to get ourselves back. And we don't have any, there's no communication methods. There's nothing that they can call back the base camp and say, hey, come rescue us. Or they turn around. And so two years setting up an expedition, trekking out 700 something miles, saying, hey, we're 103 miles from the South Pole. We just need to turn back if we're going to live to see another day. And he came to this decision and you'd think, okay, this is a binary decision. This is either we go forward and we'll probably we'll hit our goal, but we'll probably die on the way back, or we go turn back at this point. And he chose a third option, which was he said, what we're going to do, I think it was January 8th, 1909. And he said, What we're gonna do is gonna leave all, you know, on on this day, we're going to leave everything. The tents, the food, the sleeping bags, everything that we've got, we're gonna leave behind. We're gonna walk south as far as we can for one day. We're gonna plant the British flag, and that then we'll turn around, head back to, to the campsite that we had, and the next day we'll start heading back home. So the question is, why did he do that? And his reasoning was to cross the hundred-mile mark. That it seemed a lot better to return to Britain being, hey, we got within 100 miles of the South Pole, then say we got 103 miles to the South Pole. And it's that ability to say, it's to make a decision, but to say, often we as human beings want to find, make a binary decision. We want to say, is it A or B? Is it X or Y? Is it stop or go? Is it you know, forward or back? And he was able to say, look, there are, third, there are third options. Yes, we have to go back if we're gonna live, but taking that one extra day to plant the flag that much further meant that they could sort of declare victory. It wasn't a, it wasn't a real victory, but it was a, enough of a victory that they'd go back to England and he could start raising money for another expedition. So I think the
0: thing for me is when you're decision-making is looking at the impacts of our decisions as well. So, And so we could stop here, it'd be a failure. We can go on and we can die. As you say, there's, they seem quite binary. And he, he somehow picked up that third. And I think that's really important for how we're in business today and moving forward, because the world is very, isn't binary.
1: It, exactly. And I think this is the thing that, but, it, but it, our human brains really like this. We really like to make a decision. And you know, I think when you get into boardroom decisions, you find that as you know, as teams of people are analyzing things in big corporations, they're trying to be like, okay, I got to get, you know make, help the boss make the right decision. You've got to go into the boardroom and be like, here are your choices. Your choices A, your choices B, and often the choice is way more complicated than that, but it's been boiled down to A or B because that's easy to sh- go to a boardroom and say, here are your choices, CEO, CFO, whoever, and and this way, you know, and and here's my recommendation, as opposed to being well, let's start searching for that third alternative that may be not A, not B, but something that will enable us to plant that flag and, and it, it may be a better solution. Because you can't, like we were saying, we can't predict the future,
0: hmm. so. Because even if it had gone to that day, somebody could have got injured or something and they could have never made it back or whatever. So there was no guarantee well, of actually still being alive in the Arctic, it was just reducing the risks of death
1: Yes, exactly. Everything's everything is calculated risk, but it's it's trying to say what what gives you momentum. So it's it's yeah, it's it's, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating s- study of when you're looking at people like Isambard Kingdom Brunel, like Teddy Roosevelt, like Roald Amundsen, who was the first to the South Pole and first through the Northwest Passage. We're looking at Shackleton or Scott or any of these people or any or like anybody in 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 history that that you they're just they're. One and one of the things we learned as well, which was interesting, was none of them had an easy path. They you we look at people today, and I think we often glamorize that, oh, someone, you know, someone successful because it was really easy for them. And when you look at someone like Teddy Roosevelt, born into a wealthy family, could have he was very intelligent, he was very sickly as a young boy, he could have just put his feet up and said, I just want to indulge my my fascination with the natural world and collect rocks and insects and and study mammals and and birds and and all the things that he was fascinated by, but he decided that's not the life he wants to lead. He wants to live lead a life that gives back to to the world and went into politics. So it's an interesting thing. That you think, well, then, yeah, but even for him, it must have been easy. And it was You know, the press was brutal to him as as a presser today. And, and, and so people, we look at them and they'll be like, Oh, wow, that guy had an easy, that woman had easy. And it's not like that. They had real honest to God challenges that they, they overcame and all of them, Brunel, Amundsen, all these people had real, real obstacles that they constantly hit. But what was different about them was that they were able to overcome them or they saw them with a different mindset than, than most people do. I mean, there's,
0: there's something that is there's a guy called astro teller who runs google google it used to be google x and i think one of your things you're saying is we're going to try something if it doesn't work that's fine because we're going to learn on the way exactly exactly we are well and the story he talks is about is when google were creating their drive driverless car and he's talking about the driverless car and he's having an, and they're doing it and they came from this assumption this goes back to what you're talking about the panama canal there was an, a canal, sorry, there was an assumption built into that the we would have some level of control still as drivers i think people say we're not going we're not going to be fully autonomous we're going to have some level of control he said but when they actually got to the point of testing people in the car they realized that no people didn't do that the, the, the behavior of people was i'm not driving this and I i will not stay alert because they just they just mm-hmm. won't do it so they then had to go back to the drawing board and the mm-hmm. key assumption that whole design ethos was built on was changed overnight and it's their willingness to say okay doesn't work here, it won't work in its present format. And it's either it's too big an obstacle, so we do then have to learn to dish it, ditch it, or we still think we can overcome that obstacle by doing it this way.
1: Yes, yes, you can't, yeah, you've can't. you got to bake human nature into these things. Mm. And and you can't just just automatically assume that, that people will always make the right decision. And yeah, one of the things, actually, one of the interesting areas that I've gotten involved in is disaster response management and emergency management. So I've been writing articles for a magazine called Crisis Response Journal, which is for people who are the, you know, when there's a flood earthquake, tornado, hurricane, whatever that, these are the people who set up the, the, they're working for charities, they're working for government, they're working for private sector, they're working for nonprofits. They're, they're the people who come in and try to, try to support humanity and uh, the, the masses of people who are affected by these, these natural disasters. And what I'm trying to do is draw the lessons from people like Shackleton and Scott and Amundsen and, and Roosevelt and different people into helping crisis managers look at how these people from history looked at crises. And it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a different application to, to decision-making, but you've got to take into account how humans make decisions. And I got drawn into this area because when I was in graduate school and I was studying decision sciences, the, I got involved working for a professor and the professor was doing a study, and this is many years ago, and the study was about floods and earthquakes and saying public policy is based on the idea that, and this is talking about America, that people may live in a flood-prone area, but if the government offers low-cost flood insurance, they'll buy it because if the house is at risk of flooding, well, it would make sense, wouldn't it? If you know, the flood insurance isn't too expensive, you think people living in flood-prone areas, they know they're in flood-prone areas, they'll naturally buy the insurance, the whole organization will work well because people are insured against this risk. And what our study showed was people don't behave rationally. And when we get down to these low-probability Situations and a flood, or earthquakes, and low probability situation, even a flood-prone area, that the people don't behave rationally. They'll they'll take a low probability and, and discount it down to almost zero. But alternatively, when you look at a lottery, people look at a lottery ticket and being like, "Well, of course i I could win," when the odds are so much greater. At not when you know the 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 when it's a really really low probability, for example, winning lottery. Mm-hmm. We up that probability. And so humans have this real mix of how we deal with things. So that with the driverless cars is, is the same thing, which is you might think, well, people behave rationally. They'll always be looking out for their, their safety. And everybody is, is, no, we're actually really good at tuning things out or misjudging it, saying, well, the probability the, the driver the autonomous car will work properly is enough that I can just tune out. So, it's, so yeah, so it's just, it's interesting when you're looking at human nature and looking at policy and looking at how do you deal with things, whether it's floods and earthquakes, whether it's adventure explorers and things like that. I think
0: that's the question, isn't it? Don't, don't do what you think people should do, but what people are actually going to do. And there is a difference.
1: Yes, yes, there's are great difference. And I think it's a real, it's, and that's what's absolutely fascinating is mm. that you, and, and it's it's often hard to predict. And that's sort of what, what leads to trends and fads and and different things and you think yeah. and I, I think
0: there's a game in psychology called the ultimatum game and I, I can't remember if i can get so i've got to try and explain this to people who aren't because i can't draw it so imagine <laughs> you're, you're in pairs so you've got a group of pairs so you might be b and i'll be a and i've got a hundred dollars and i'm a and i say to you i don't say to you you get an offer from me of how many so i might say to you i'm going to give you so many dollars out of that hundred you have a choice you accept it or don't Okay, so it's just an ultimatum. You're either going to say yes or no. There's no negotiations, no communication. If you say yes, we both get what was agreed. If you say no, we both get nothing. So unless you were offered zero, logically you should say yes to everything because it's financially beneficial for you. Even if I say, well, I'll give you $1. You Very say, nice. yes, you're going to walk away with the dollar you didn't have. I'll walk away with 99 but you'll walk away with the $1. But I believe it's around about 35%. Once people drop below 35% of being offered, so anything under $35 out of the hundreds, the, the amount of no's exponentially goes up. Wow. Okay. So that decision is based, I, I believe that decision is based on fairness. Mm-hmm. People say, so I think in organizations, whatever decisions are, well, they should say yes, they're going to be a benefit from them. So, well, if they say no, it might not because they're not looking at the benefit but they're looking well i'm not letting you get away with it and if i have to suffer because of that then that's fine right because it's okay. not fair and right. i don't want to be party to an unfair decision that i'm on mm-hmm. the end of mm-hmm.
1: yeah yeah and we see this in business or in all sorts of different ways i was talking with somebody the other day about if, remember the blackberry phones with the little keyboards on them and how blackberry is like well we're, you know, we're going to focus on making the keyboard better and better and better because people are sending these long emails with our, with our phones. And then all of a sudden, the world just changed to text messages. And I think there was a story that the person or the small team that invented text messages thought no one would ever use them. They're like, well, we can do this thing, but probably will never take off. And, and BlackBerry went out of business because their, their focus was on something that was like, you know, e- sending emails by phone was not as much fun as sending t- text by phone. And you could do that without
0: the fancy keyboard. Yeah, I, I think there's history littered, isn't there, with people who made decisions. They made decisions based on the information they had about predicting the future, and those decisions turned out to be less than ideal. And it's, then again, it's how quickly can that organization, that person, that then realize they're on the wrong path?
1: Yeah, it's, surpri- it's surprising how many don't realize that. I mean, Google and Apple are very good at at realizing, oh, we're taking the wrong path, and we they, they course correct. And then you look at places like Blockbuster, Blockbuster had a chance to buy net Netflix for 50 million dollars and turned it down because at that point they were opening one new store every 17 hours. I mean, they were just going into every high street in the UK and the US, and and just you know, and and they thought, you know, Netflix is just some online streaming service, we don't need this, we you know, it's and, and, th- and then you look at, at other situations, whether it's, you know, booksellers getting preempted by Amazon, whether it's, but there's so many examples of, you know, even, even Kodak and Kodak actually invented the digital camera, which is sort of not always known because people are like, well, Kodak was just doing film, but that was their focus. They were doing film and then a team within the Kodak realized they could make digital cameras and the company was so focused on making film they're like no no that's just that's never going to take off and but they never went back to it mm. they didn't go back to it quick enough or or fast enough but then okay. other companies do i mean like apple hp a lot of companies have made mistakes and of and course corrected
0: i don't think there's a journey where there hasn't been oops yeah along the track, isn't it? There's going to be bumps yeah. along the so things happen that we don't expect, or we say we haven't got all the information available to us. And yes, so we, we, we believe we are good at decisions, but in some ways we are quite flawed in our decision-making process. So there's a book called "Thinking Fast." Either Think Fast Think So, or "Thinking Fast, yeah, think, think, fast think So. Yeah, right. And he yeah. talks about, and the amount of information you said, like you said, we've got so much information, we zone lots out and we kind of go into autopilot to mm-hmm. make decisions. And sometimes these complicated decisions, we simplify because then it's easier for us to make them because we like elections. He talks about elections as a result. And we kind of said, do you like this person or that person? That's how we kind of make a choice. Not really looking at the manifesto and the policies too much.
1: Yes. I mean, just okay. playing out, playing without getting too much into politics, it's playing out big time in the U S right now with mm-hmm. the Supreme court decisions. And the fact that people are like, Oh, I can't believe they just did this to you know, overturning Roe V Wade. And yet it was, so clear that the, the it was, but people wanted a photogenic or they didn't feel Hillary was photogenic enough or or it, it she didn't have the right persona for for television or whatever. It's, it's just, it's fascinating how people make decisions. They make decisions about things they vote on, things they do, things, jobs they take. And we do this all the time. And relationships. Mm-hmm. There's a fascinating book by Malcolm Gladwell, and I'm trying to think of the name of it, but it's it's about the idea that we are actually, as humans, are not, we think we're really good judges of character. We think when we meet someone, we can assess them, assess them or assess them out within a few seconds. And what he proves in this book over and over and over again is we're actually terrible at it. And our ability to delude ourselves and think, oh, that person looks like a criminal. That person looks like they're a good person. That person looks like They'd be a, a kind, generous person, and they're trying to be a, be a rat bag or a crook or a, an evil doer. And 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 it's but we're actually actually very bad at at, at judging other humans. And it's and he, I mean there are many many high profile cases. There's one very interesting one about a CIA spy, a spy who was in the CIA. And you think all these people in the CIA would absolutely know if there was a spy among among them and they didn't, the person was just so good at hiding it. And everyone just assumed, well, she seems like a nice person. She does the, all those sort of nice things and, and does her work and she's really commended. And she'd be like commended by the president, one of the presidents this going back 20 or 30 years, but you know, one of the presidents will come, you know, she got, gave her like a, some fancy award. And it's like, and yet at the same time, she was a complete spy for, for Cuba. It's like, hmm. you know, and, and, you know, everyone just, just assumed that, oh, it's just, you know, nice person it's they must be
0: nice and yeah, so. so we have these flaws all of us have these flaws in our decision-making process and you've looked at things in the past about people who yes they've had their flaws and we've talked they're, they're not perfect characters but they've created amazing outcomes through the decision-making process and their resilience so what do you think are the key things that sort of maybe stands them the or the key lessons that you've learned what i think one
1: thought? one of them is that they're very good at building teams that had very simple goals, mm-hmm. like a single goal. And that goal of, of whether it's Amundsen taking a team of, of seven people through the Northwest Passage. Northwest Passage is a was the sea route that has been desired for over 400 years. And and famous people like Sir John Franklin and all these different, Henry Hudson, all these different explorers and adventurers tried to find it, which is literally a sea route that goes from from Greenland across Northern Canada to the top of Alaska to Asia. And no one could see, because there are all these little islands and all these ice formations, and it's very hard to, it was impossible for people to find a a sea route through. And Amis is like, he studies it and studies it and go like, the secret to this is a small team with a single purpose, which is we going sail a, sm- a various, and everyone's like, no, you can't take a small ship through that sort of ice crusted, you know, uh, all these islands, a lot of unmapped areas. And yeah, there, there are places where this, the water is so shallow, you, you, the, the, you only have a few inches of water that you're, you're, you know, that, and, and so a small boat can sail better than a big boat, but it's, it's, it's just a fascinating story of someone saying, you know, "What the 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 secret's a small team that's very focused with a mixture." Now, you know, typically these teams were all white males, but he the teams were diverse in that some people were naval people, some people were scientists, some people were, they had all these different skills, and he was able to form teams. Shackleton did the same. Captain Scott did the same. He formed teams. That are made up of multiple different types of skills and backgrounds, different nationalities, and and as we said, in the Antarctic and with Amundsen and in the Northwest Passage, they're happening all white males. But within that structure, they were they were quite diverse, and so diversity, singleness of purpose was were key key elements.
0: So. So for leaders today, say say, like, look at your team. So how can you then bring those, that diversity, the strengths within that team into that team? So say, it may not be gender diversity. You may not have racial diversity, but you do have cognitive diversity and skills-based.
1: Right. Now, what's interesting is that, so so sometimes we think of diversity as just being, well, we're just ticking boxes. Uh-huh. So we've got to have different people and what our studies showed is that it's not about ticking boxes. And I've seen, I've, there are many other studies by other people have done this as well, which is that that diversity gives you diversity of thought, gives you diversity of reactions. So where one, one person, if you took a, so all people being very homogenous, they may all react in the same way. As opposed to someone else saying, wait a minute, what, what about this alternative or that alternative? Or, or what if we took this approach or that approach? And so diversity gives you strength it does is not just a box of taking exercise. The more homogenous the groups were, the more challenges they had. And we saw that you see this in some of the various Antarctic and Arctic expeditions. Like why the, the ones we studied, there were six, there were two by Shackleton, two by Scott, one by Amundsen, one by Mawson that we studied in our first book. They were quite diverse in terms of, of being this, this mix of scientists and military people and and other people as well so it's like a shackled you know one of his expeditions that's still so it's like so then you've got there's like random guy just shows up because he's been starving in a closet for a couple of days and then when they, they're heading down towards antarctica this guy this young man staggers out of out of the closet being like you know i'm still on the ship and uh, what's funny, the good Shackleton did say, here's this, this uh, slightly overweight young man and Shackleton drags him up on deck in front of all the other men and says, throw you overboard if I could, but I can't. But I'll tell you, if we ever get into trouble, you'll be the first one we eat. And That gives somebody confidence, doesn't it? So again, yeah. don't, please don't get into
0: trouble. Please don't get right. into trouble. Great. Right. Exactly. costs exactly. Okay, so we've got a diverse group. And I I totally agree with you. I'm I'm a great fan of inclusion and getting people involved. And um, if you want a system to change or a system to evolve, get the system involved in the conversation, which comes from appreciative inquiry and appreciate, appreciate those people around you and sort of dig out their strengths and encourage them. Okay. And a singleton, of course, a very clear
1: purpose. What are we doing? What are we trying to achieve? And there was one other thing as well, which was they always had a second in command, Mm -hmm. even in a small team, sometimes even a team of three people, you'd have a team lead and you'd have a person who was the second in command. Now, whether that was designated as the second in command or whether it was sort of just a facto based on the person's experience or knowledge or or skills. And especially in situations where you had seven or eight people and you had a team and you had a second in command, you'd be like, why do you need a second in command It's such a small team? The, what was happening, and actually I've, it, I worked, the company I worked for prior to retiring was a German software company, and so like 100,000 people in the company, but the, the team I was in was fairly small, and I was reporting someone who was a second-in-command, but I often also report to his boss. And so I had this sort of strange structure, but it was very similar to what was in the Antarctic, was, was that you could go to the second-in-command and say, I don't really understand this task. Now, I wouldn't necessarily want to go to my boss and say that, the boss is, or his boss. Or, I wouldn't want to go higher up in the company and say, I don't really understand this task. I, but it, you might want to say, hey, I don't understand this task or I don't like this person I need to work with or we've got this interpersonal conflict that we need resolution on. You can go to the second-in-command without bothering the main guy mm. <laughs> and the main, main woman. And, and I think this is where the second-in-command structure works really well and that it gives you the ability to take a grievance, take a challenge, take a problem and resolve it without someone going like, so that's a ding on your mark because you don't know how to do that. Or you're just a troublemaker or you're just, or you're just lazy or, or it's just not getting done. And all of a sudden you, the is procrastinating, procrastinating because they, they haven't been able to say to someone, I don't know how to do this. And all of a sudden the deadline hits and it's not done or it's not done well. So it's just like a, it's a. So that's another, another criteria, another method that they used.
0: So have a deputy, second in command, somebody that people feel comfortable talking to and approaching with some of the, I mean, I'd say maybe more operational day to day issues they they're they're facing. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then so then the person in the lead is is doing the, say the more leadership strategic type of stuff and not getting bogged down into that operational stuff.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then-
0: any micromanagers <laughs> listening? Any micromanagers <laughs> listening today? Right. Okay, we're going to add something else.
1: Right, and and one of the other things was was never giving up. I think it's not about not when you hit a dead end. It's not like saying, "Okay, this is a dead end. I'm going to stop." It's like this is a dead end. I'm going to try something else. And so this never giving up, is not necessarily saying you're going to go in a straight line. I'm just going to keep going, 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 going until I collapse. It's going to keep going, and then I'm going to hit an obstacle, and maybe I'll try to break through that obstacle, but maybe I'll need to go around that obstacle, or maybe I need to change, change course completely. And I think we, we saw this with some of the things Brunel was doing. We saw it with some of the things Roosevelt was doing, and and the explorers, that that the the main thing was perseverance. It was, but perseverance doesn't mean just bang your head into a wall time after time after time. It's trying to be like, okay, I've tried and now I've hit this wall and now I'm going to turn sideways and try to get another route through. And and, I mean, there are very real instances of that when you hit a crevasse field and you're trying to go through a, a, a glacier and there are crevasses and you go like, okay, we just need to start going sideways. We can't go through, don't wanna fall in crevasses. So we just need to start going sideways till we get away from the crevasse field, mm-hmm. which is sort of a, a visual way of thinking out, but those sorts of similar sorts of things happen in, in all walks of life.
0: Okay, so we come against something perhaps we weren't expecting or some challenges. And it's not necessarily saying, right, this is the path I'm on. I'm not going to change. So exactly. we'd say, would it be something like sailing? So, you know, like, I've got to go over there and I'm here. That's the route we've picked, but the wind's changing or something's happened. So we've got to attack and adapt.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. But it doesn't mean you give up and it doesn't. And so even when we look at Shackleton's story of getting to, trying to get to the South Pole and saying, we're not going to get there, but we're going to, we're going to, plant the flag at 96, 97 miles from the South Pole. We're gonna go back, we're gonna to live to see another day, we're gonna set up another expedition, we're gonna try again. And it's like, yeah, so so yeah, so we didn't make it this time, but we achieved something and now we're gonna go back and and try again. And it may be several years that we get a chance to try again, but it is that sense of, of constantly trying. In fact, there, there's a wonderful story of, of in the, from the endurance expedition, where the ship gets crushed in the ice and the men end up getting stranded on, it's a long story to get them to the, where you've got 22 men stranded on Elephant Island, which is an uninhabited large, well, basically a bit large rock in in near Antarctica. And Shackleton and, and five other men take one of the largest of the of lifeboats. And the largest lifeboat was only 23 feet long across 800 miles of the roughest seas of the world and sail it to South Georgia, which is an island that is inhabited. They get to the island that is inhabited after 17 days and the terrible storms and and terrible conditions. And they arrive, and they arrive on the wrong side of the island, the uninhabited side. So they have to, three of them, of the six men, three stay with the, the small boat, and three walk across the uninhabited, unmarked, uncharted mountains to get to the whaling village. I think, okay, well, then everybody's saved, aren't they? Because you've got the 22 men on Elfin Island, you've got the other three on the uninhabited side of South Georgia, and you've got the whaling village on South Georgia. And the whalers can just sail around. They could easily rescue the other three men, but you still have the 22 men on Elfin Island. So the whalers set off in a ship to go rescue the 22 men on Elfin Island, 800 miles away. And they can't get near Elfin Island because it's all iced in. So they, and Shackleton goes, they go back. And so Shackleton, so this the first attempt. Uh, Shackleton gets another ship, tries again. They can't get near Elephant Island because of the ice. Tries again, gets another ship. And, th- and he's going across like what well, he, he starts in South Georgia. Then he's at in the Falkland Islands trying to get a ship. Then he's in Argentina and, and Uruguay trying to get a ship. Eventually they do. It took four efforts before they rescued the men on Elephant Island. I mean, these, it's like, this is the, you know, just cure keep persevering. He wasn't going to give up until he got his men rescued. But it wasn't gonna, it wasn't easy. Mm. So like, and these sort of insp- ins- you know, these sort of things are sort of inspirational because because we do hit obstacles. We hit, you know, the whole world hit an obstacle with with COVID. And now we've hit an obstacle with, with the Ukraine war in a way that, you know, our our economies are suffering. Our, we're dealing with inflation. We're dealing with all the, all these high costs of things and being like, okay, well that's not really what I had planned for. But we just got to deal with it. Yeah, you know, just try again. Try something else. Try something.
0: So. I think. I think one of the things that I, it strikes me is that what they that it comes across within the stories you've told is what they do is say, it, it, "It." I heard this so many times. It is what it is. We are where we are. The thing is, where do we go next?
1: Yes, they are very good at saying it precisely that, which is not blaming. It's just this is where we are today. And how do we put one foot in front of the next and move forward in some way? And I think this is you know, this was the the lesson out of COVID mm-hmm. was you know what we can look at the dreams and ambitions that we had in 2018, 2019, and say well we can't do all that you know can't can't get back to the life we had in 2019. We're just freewheeling just you know everyone just traveling where they want, and going where they want, not worrying about getting COVID. I know so many people who in the last two months have gotten COVID. And, and it, it hasn't gone away. And it's just been like this, you know, just persevering through and being like, I, I can't get the life I had. I'll just persevere through with the life I've got. Mm. Same with inflation. It's like, you know, okay. So I've got to cut you know, that the, for, for me. Cause now I'm trying to live off my in- income as an author. It's trying to say, okay, now I need to reduce my spending. That's right. That, that's what I mean. It's a permanent decision. It's just temporary for, well, inflation is running high. And and so it, so it's we all have to make adjustments. And I think it's just accepting that that you can't always have, things can't go back the way they were. So you can't blame things. You can't say, oh, I wish it was different. This is what it is. Here, here we are in 2022. It is
0: what it is. It is what it is. What's happened has happened. And mistakes have been made, and they probably will. And mistakes will be made. I think it's accepting that big thing. isn't It's about, do we accept failure learn from it move on so i think there's a lot within innovation there seems to be a lot of um sort of analogies about how these men made these great impacts and it was it wasn't an easy trip and it was like perseverance but also learning and then moving on so from that lesson what did i learn how can what am i going to do differently next time exactly to try and make exactly
1: yeah there's there's a a lot of great lessons to 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 learn from but it's very much that idea of of trying not to focus on blame, not to focus on what could have happened and just be, okay, this is where I am today. How do we move forward?
0: Because we can't change the past.
1: Yes, you can't change the past.
0: We can only influence where we go in the future.
1: Right, and we can't even predict that. And as we said at the very beginning, we can't can't predict the future that well. So in a way, you just have this present time and the answer, of course, correct and adjust as you go and just keep persevering and that was that's probably the biggest lesson of all of it is this perseverance mm-hmm. that that's resilience perseverance and and the world world and given given my age we've seen cycles before we've seen the the economic downturn and in the 90 there was one in the 90s there's one in 2008 so, you know, these things are recurring and eventually the world sort of gets through it and there are wars and people get through it and
0: so Yep, I changed my job in nineteen ninety recession. I went mm-hmm. from a paid job to freelance in two thousand and nine recession. You thought I'd learn, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Be like you. Well, you know, it was just one of those things. And then you just like just oh, I could have chosen a better time. I could have. I didn't. I'm here.
1: Right. That's exactly. just want to make it work. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what that's what makes life fascinating. And and I mean, you've got to see it as as a as a, a game. Mm. And you've got to see it as, as how do I manage within this, within these multitude of challenges, and, and just keep thinking positively and optimistically, and and yeah,
0: I think there's a because I do Clifton strengths, and there's two strong. I've, I've got high positivity, which is always like looking at what could be rather than what has what, what has not been, and also I've got high adaptability, which is you know what, I'm I'm comfortable in the here and now. Mm-hmm and this level of uncertainty. So I do think one of the keys that perseverance and you say where we do is accept the level of uncertainty in which we actually do live. Yes. It's been unusual yes. in the last 10, 15 years. We've had a lot of certainty, which has been unusual because say the cycles, we haven't had these cycles for come back that used to be much more regular.
1: Yes, um, yes. And, and yeah, it's, it's funny when you look back at life and you think, you know, I know I was in America, my first mortgage was at 11% and the, at that point, you had savings and loans organizations that gave mortgages. And the banker there said to me, you'll never get a loan this low ever again. And interest rates went all the way up to like 18%. And now they're down to like, you know, they, they came down to like 2%, 1% for mortgages at one point. Oh. And he was saying, he was predicting the future of like, you'll never see something lower than 11%. And now, it's going to, and now it's sort of rising back up a bit. But there was something that I want to, to say that, that Shackleton was asked once, what are the traits of, do you need to be a polar explorer? And he said they were optimism, patience, physical endurance, idealism, and courage. And I think that's sort of like a good sense of traits for, for 2022. Mm-hmm.
0: So this is a question I've asked you before. And you were like, oh, I don't know. Because <laughs> we can't predict the future. We've, we so we, I'm going to ask this question on but I'm never going to come back and say this is what you said ten years ago. Okay. What happened. So we've you've looked at great people in the past or people who've had a great impact and sort of shown all those traits. If you look back over the last five years or 10 years up to today, who do you think might be if you were to do this book again in a hundred years time, who do you think might be the people you would say these are the leaders of 2020, 2022? whatever this region that say this level of uncertainty we've had that i would like to investigate i would like to to examine
1: right there's well certainly Zelensky is one of the most fascinating characters of someone who's you know, not only transformed himself in the sense of being from a comedian to a dancer to a, an actor to being a president and actually being a statesman and he actually moved this continuum and somehow commands the world stage it's it's quite a remarkable transformation for a human being. And, and that, so he's, he's one, I think, definitely. Uh, and certainly you see people like, I think Tim Cook at Apple is quite a fascinating character because he's, he's not flamboyant and he's not out there as portraying himself as a visionary. And yet he runs a visionary company and I think that he's quite a, a, a sort of a soft-spoken, enormously successful human being. And, and I think that's that And Apple delves into all sorts of different, different avenues and, and everyone was predicting. In fact, I, I read a study once that said that at a point when Apple stock jumped 80% in one year, uh, no, probably 70% in one year, 80% of all the articles written about Apple were about how it's it was falling by the wayside, it was not being innovative, it was so a lot of people diss, dissing Apple, criticizing it, saying it was never going to achieve anything. Like, you know, after Steve Jobs died, they lost their way. Um, Samsung phones were better, whatever. It's like all these things, and and yet Apple just kept performing and performing and performing. And I think the other is Elon Musk. I mean, he's quite a controversial character. But he's he's clearly a visionary at one level. And and it's hard to assess him at this stage. I, he, I don't, you know, would he be like a Brunel? I'm not sure. The I think we'd see, I think we'd easily say my last book was about an engineer, explorer and a statesman. Uh-huh. So you had Amundsen as the explorer and Brunel as an ex- engineer and Teddy Roosevelt as a statesman. Certainly you'd have... St- Zelensky as a statesman, and perhaps Elon Musk or, or Tim Cook as the engineer, I'm not sure who the explorer would be at this stage, but it's, it's a fascinating it's fascinating to look at, at modern life in those terms. Is there anyone that you'd, you'd...
0: I think quite controversially, I might go for someone like Theresa May. And why is that? I think because she managed an extraordinarily turbulent time in British politics. Coming in as only the second female leader of the party, second prime minister. And I think she kind of, and this might be controversial, I think she kind of got dropped in at the deep end, big style. Hmm. Because they said, we're going to have a referendum. And as soon as they lost the referendum, the then prime minister said, right, I, I don't want to deal with this. I'm off. And the party was split. So she was trying to manage a split party. But one thing I think about her, if you talk about the visionary and the stuff about the and it being the perseverance and the, the sheer determination to do the right thing. Yes. Despite the circumstances in which she found herself, I think would be quite an interesting thing and how history might view her, I think might be slightly differently compared to how she was viewed currently,
1: I think. That's interesting. That's very interesting. I hadn't thought of that. The, uh, yeah, certainly you have to look at, at Biden as, and I think that there's a lot to be commended about Biden's very calm, reasoned approach with everyone saying, oh no, you need to like take these knee jerk reactions to everything that's happening the Supreme Court decisions and, and uh, prosecuting Trump and all the different different decisions. And he's taking a very steady approach to, to things. Mm. And I think there's some, Theresa May was doing the same. I think she was trying to be a steady influence on something where, where the, the press and everyone's asking for, for dramatic action. So it's interesting. It's 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 a fascinating world that we live in. I, th- I think yes.
0: I think that you could look back in this this period of time, last five five ten, probably the next five years, I sort of ten years that, that decade, maybe the twenty twenties might be in, was such an interesting decade to look back on in the years. And I think there'll be there'll be leaders or people who, as you say, Zelensky came to the fore very very quickly because of the circumstances, Ukraine war, and how he how he positively managed his way of doing it very churchillian i think in his approach and he's very very good at oratory he can he speaks well he can engage with people and he says the actions he has is going down to the front line and actually being
1: being there at the front line with people yes sorry what he showed is some of what shackleton said was you know so optimism and patience of physical endurance i mean he's just just showed this is bravery when you look at him look at Navalny these are people who are just so incredibly brave. And we aren't used to seeing this level of bravery. We're used to seeing people talking about being brave. And you see adventurers and mountain climbers and people doing adventuresome things, but in a world where there's communication, in a world where there's there's rescue. And and so a lot of these, yes, some some adventurers and explorers do die in modern times but they do have and they do risky things but there's a level of bravery that doesn't exist and and most of the people i've met right all of the the people that have been antarctic adventurers today have said when i've seen them talk or i've talked with them they said we're we are adventurers we are not explorers in this shackleton scott Amundsen sense we're not at that risk and yet here we have in Zelensky and navalny and some of the other people that here we have sheer, honest to God, bravery. And it's a fascinating thing just to, to see it in a world where we, many people haven't seen it in a while.
0: Mm. I think also the difference between leaders who say, to do, and they, they do it from like, from a distance, from afar. But, right. no, this person is there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I seeing, him, seeing Zelensky walk on the streets uh, and and of of the cities and in the ukraine it's just i'm always amazed it's like it's it's, it's just very risky it's
0: it's it is bravery a, in action bravery perseverance a bit of patience and he yeah. just keeps banging yeah. it. He's, he's and so and, it's a very clear and,
1: message and yes and one of the things i think one of the lost arts is or or being a great orator, and you saw this with, with Teddy Roosevelt, who always had these wonderful turns of phrase. And you had, you see this with Zelensky, but with, and you had it with Churchill. So, the way we had Teddy Roosevelt in the early 1900s, you had Churchill in the 1940s, and you've got Zelensky now. But this, the, the turns of phrase, like from Roosevelt, were things like trying to achieve glorious triumphs, trying to cajole and encourage Americans at that time to say, the easy life is not what's desired. The people who make a mark in, in the world are the people who are not sitting in armchairs. The people out there getting beat up in, as he would call it, in, in the arena. You're the, he wrote, he had this great speech called the man in the arena, but it's like the person in the arena, the person who's out there getting beat up. It's not the critics who are criticizing them. It's the people who are out there and they may not succeed. And, and he had a great phrase called dare mighty things that you've, just got to keep going out and persevering and persevering and trying and doing things and, and daring to be great. And and you might fail along the way.
0: Mm. I think it's great. Now I'm going to try, because I can't remember. There's the, the film, The Darkest Hour. I think it's The Darkest Hour, which is about okay. Churchill coming into 1939 yeah. and his speech at parliament. And it's somebody's and and everyone's like clapping and things going up. And somebody says, what's he done? And he says, he's just mobilized the English language.
1: Well, that's precisely. And I think we don't have enough of that Mm -hmm. today. We don't have, we've got, Zelensky's trying to do it, but he's, but in the, in the Western world, the, in, in the world that is American Britain, where we don't have that great order today, there's no one that's that is, is that Churchillian person right now that, and we need that. Yeah, because that, that's that again. Because people who can
0: articulate the vision and put it in the word and tell stories and do it in a way that resonates gets people yeah. so much more. Yes, so I, I, and, yeah, we could we could argue about possibly why maybe this thing about soundbite politics. We talk about this, and we could talk about that, but people still will if somebody can get up and give a rousing speech.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think you know, JFK was able to do this to some degree, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a it's a rare skill, and it's a skill that probably needs to be taught more to. To young people that ability to 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 speak and and to to inspire
0: and it is it through stories well it's been an absolute
1: pleasure brad oh great thanks
0: absolute pleasure. just saying thank you very much for your time i think it's a nice thing to finish on actually the the ability to actually articulate and speak and inspire people is probably something you've always got from the past and there are people currently doing it but they're few and far between and it's yes it's, and it may be the way we communicate now with more text more videos more this more that and everything that we don't practice that skill as much so that's maybe why it's less, it's less prevalent so learn from the past learn from absolutely the past. right okay so but again thank you very much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure well thanks very much scott you're welcome